Welcome to the latest episode of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And this week, the guest host is one that's new to this podcast, although it's not going to be his last appearance. So Mr. Josh Avery is joining us from the Horizon Labs Facebook and Twitter groups. Welcome aboard, Josh. Thanks for having me. All right, so... This week we are looking at story number 64 in the countdown, Punisher Welcome Back Frank. It's really the 2005 relaunch, or sorry, the year 2000 relaunch of the Punisher, which ran a grand total of 12 issues and we're looking at all of them. It was written by Garth Ennis with pencils by Steve Dillon, inks by Jimmy Palmiotti, colors by Chris Sotomayor. Letters were credited to Richard Starkings and Comic Craft's Wes Abbott. Now, Joe Casada was editor-in-chief during this period, he was one of the regular editors on the series as well, since it started under the Marvel Knights imprint, with Joe Casada, Jimmy Palmiotti, Nancy DeKeesian, and Stuart Moore being the full editing team. Cover dates range from April 2000 to March 2001, with release dates ranging from February 9th, 2000 to January 10th, 2001. All right, so that's the nitty-gritty technical stuff out of the way. Now, let's talk about the story itself. So, let's start off a little bit with the Marvel Knights imprint. Not everyone may be familiar with Marvel Knights and what that meant. This was coming out of Marvel's very near bankruptcy. That actually filed for it. They are almost through it. They had done an experiment with Heroes Reborn where they took some of their major properties and outsourced them to essentially another company. In an experiment that lasted a little over a year. And from what I've been reading, it's a little unclear whether that deadline was planned or not. So after that, one of the things that they did to recover was Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti came in with the idea of Marvel Knights, where they would take a group of the street-level Marvel heroes that weren't doing as well in sales and relaunch them and try to draw some attention to them. So in doing that, there was a Marvel Knights ongoing that had a bunch of those characters, including the Punisher, Daredevil, you know, Misty Knight, Iron Fist, and a number of these guys in sort of an anthology-style book, in some cases more like a team-up style. This is where we got the Kevin Smith relaunch of Daredevil was coming out of Marvel Knights, and this is part of that process. So it still came out under the Marvel banner. It wasn't treated quite as distinctly as Heroes Reborn. It was still part of the Marvel Universe. It just so happened that these characters never interacted with the rest of the Marvel Universe during this run. So that's where this was in terms of how it sits in the industry and what's going on. So from there, we should get into the plot. So for a quick plot synopsis, there's a Gnucci crime family that's run by Ma Gnucci, and they're the Punisher's next targets. So he comes back to New York, and in the course of this 12-issue run, he targets them and decides to take them down systematically. It doesn't always go as smoothly as he'd hoped, and along the way, he sort of draws the attention of the local police, but kind of not really. It's an interesting take we'll get into in a little more detail later. So, Josh, why don't you share how you first read the story and how you came across it, and maybe your history with the Punisher itself, since this is the first Punisher story that we really discussed. Uh, my personal history with the Punisher starts when I was in sixth grade and we had silent reading time and I always bought a book, uh, usually maybe Clive Barker or Stephen King, but the words on, on page didn't really get me to be enthusiastic about reading. But another kid in the class had a Punisher book and immediately the cover just struck me something with two Uzis and him breaking through a window or something. And I found that very appealing. So from there, that's kind of my introduction to comics as well as the Punisher. And from there, I went and sought out where I could buy comics. And actually, I think I bought a Punisher action figure before I bought any of the comics. So, and needless to say, he is my favorite character overall. Okay. 
Yeah, my history with that is actually a lot less involved. <laughs> so when I came up with the idea for this podcast, it was when Marvel published the list of the 75 greatest stories. And I was reading it in my local comic shop, uh, namely Thunderground in St. Albert. Roy Kim runs a great shop if you're in the area. And going through the list, I realized I already owned 73 out of 75 stories on it. And the 74th was sitting on the shelf. This was number 75. It's out of print, but Roy was able to track a copy down for me. So this is actually my first exposure to this story, largely because my first exposures to the Punisher didn't really appeal to me. Generally speaking, I'm not a Punisher fan. So I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed this particular Punisher story, considering how little enjoyment I got out of his first couple of essentials. So we'll get into that in a little bit more detail later, but I don't know, I guess with that, it's probably a good point to discuss why Punisher is your favorite character and one of my least favorites. <laughs> so why don't we open it up? What What is it about the Punisher that you like so much? I guess I like that at the time when I was introduced to the character, there was, a, as, as there is today, a lot of capes and cowls and, you know, superheroes with these get-ups and you know, my first introduction to him was, you know, basically a guy with a skull shirt, didn't appear to have any superpowers, just looked like a regular guy doing his own thing. And I thought that was really appealing. Of course, growing up, I loved superheroes, Batman, Captain America, Superman, Spidey. But there was something a little bit more appealing uh, to this at this age for me about just kind of a regular guy doing his thing. Yeah, so kind of like the, the Batman level, someone you could actually be then. Right. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. For me... I think what put me off about the Punisher is his willingness to kill. I I like it when my heroes are sort of examples about finding another way and that sort of thing. So I've always had an issue with the fact that the Punisher operates in the Marvel Universe and the other heroes allow it given his methods. Because I always felt he really should be treated as a villain. And part of why I enjoyed this story so much is, in some ways he is. The way it comes across, he does say that, yeah, he is one of the bad guys. He just targets other bad guys along with it, right? So he's kind of a low priority because, you know, whether you agree with his methods or not, the world tends to be a better place because of how carefully he chooses the people he does actually kill. So like I said, I've had issues with, you know, why... For the, the best summary is probably the one that Grave Rooka gave on his Word Balloon interview when he was writing The Punisher. That's a run I've been meaning to track down because... All of my problems with the Punisher were right there as expressed by Greg Rooka. He says the Punisher doesn't work in the Marvel Universe because the Avengers would stop him. Uh, because if he's doing his job well, he has no recurring villains. Right? That That's part of his modus operandi. But this one, it didn't change that. It just embraced it. He flat out says he kills the bad guys, not because he's trying to make the world a better place, but because he just likes to do it. Right? That is one of the lines of dialogue he has with the woman called Joan the Mouse. And it, it does... It, uh, it is enjoyable. It is very funny in places, which I was not expecting from a Punisher comic. So it's entirely possible that just the Punisher issues I've read so far have not represented the potential of the character. And what you mentioned about how he doesn't necessarily like what he does, but it has to be done. Uh, we'll, we'll actually go over that in the first appearance podcast uh, for Amazing Spider-Man 129, because he does state that there as well. He's not happy about killing, but he just feels like that's what has to be done. Yeah, it's, uh, well, somebody's got to do it, and I've got nothing left to lose, so it might as well be me. Right. Yeah, he's got the skills, he's got the inclination, and there, there's nothing else for him. This has become his purpose. He's very single-minded, and that comes across here. And one of the things I liked about it is that it shows a slightly different perspective to the way he treats the innocent civilians than he did in the earlier appearances. In the early comics, he virtually ignored them. 
here he clearly cares about them, especially with the way the story wraps up. There's a, a few that he's gotten to know, and by the time it's all said and done, he's done something quite nice for all three of them. Exactly, and he does live with these people, and then, you know, mentions to them that he has to leave for their safety, and they mention at one point they feel less safe without him, but, you know, he's putting them in danger, and he actually cares about them as, as individuals and humans, and that's why he has to leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, he he is... I mean, he's what he is because of his experience in the Marines and his experience with the mob killing his family. And we might as well recap his origin now rather than later with issue 129 because that's not actually a part of that story. Right, exactly. Yeah. So for those who are unfamiliar with the Punisher, if the terminology existed at the time the story was written, he would have been labeled PTSD coming back from Vietnam. And he witnessed the death of his family at the hands of a drug-pushing mafia. So he lost his wife. uh, Was it one child? Uh, it was two children. Two children, yeah. So his wife and kids were slaughtered in front of him. And at that point, he said, okay, that's unacceptable. Everything about my world is gone. But I've got all this training, and there's bad guys out there. So I'm going to use that training to take out the bad guys. And I think that, in a nutshell, is what the Punisher has been about for I think, pretty much the whole time. Except for when exactly. Gawkin killed him and chopped him up, and they put him back together as a Frankenstein monster. But that's... That story did not make the list of 75 Greatest Marvels. Uh, I have a gut feeling if they did the top 7,000 stories, that might not be in there. But I, I do uh, love and respect Rick Remender otherwise. Yeah, I'll, I haven't read it. I mean, you're probably more familiar with The Punisher before and after this than I am. Because as I said, my my experience with The Punisher amounts to his first appearances in, in well, what's covered in the first two volumes of The Essentials. Guest appearances in Daredevil and uh, Spider-Man and a couple other comics I've read, his appearances in Civil War, his initiative fallout, the first story arc of that one, which that one, I, I admit, it engaged me. The, the first issue that was co-written by two people, that first story arc when he decided that there's no way he was going to just stand by and let Green Goblin take over S.H.I.E.L.D. Yes, I remember that. Yes. Yeah, that was a story where, yeah, the Punisher belonged in that world, and I completely understood why he's allowed to operate the way he was doing especially since he spent right. most of it on the run from the century. But that is, by and large, my experience with him. That and the, the Marvel Knights anthology or team-up title that I mentioned previously that I was reading primarily for the Daredevil element, more so than the, the Punisher element. So I don't know if this had a lot of impact in terms of continuity. When the Punisher is written right in terms of his definition and his modus operandi and his stated skill level, there's not going to be a lot of allies that follow along with him because he's not going to put them in the crosshairs. And if there's any enemies still alive, he hasn't finished his job yet. So when you've got a complete story, it kind of would tend to stand alone, I think. Would you say that's fair of a lot of his run? Yes. One thing that I would mention is that uh, as far as the impact on the industry, the now defunct, or I believe it's defunct, Max line, I believe this is what had made that possible. Based off of the reception of Welcome back, Frank. Obviously, he's on the top five. That's why we're here today. But the the nature of the Punisher and the type of story you're telling, as we've mentioned several times, doesn't really belong necessarily in the universe. And they made this universe, the Max universe, primarily for the Punisher, where you could tell a gritty story with, you know, the, the dialogue, uh, not appropriate children, um, and, and blood and guts and gore. And so I think that it did have an impact on the in- industry to create a line which I'm sure was you know, successful in its own right. Probably the numbers weren't that high, but for you know what it was, it probably did fairly well. 
they're able to come up with a few other characters in there, but you'd never see Spider-Man um, or Daredevil or Captain America in that. Yeah, not in their own titles. I think there was... No. I mean, there was the alias Jessica Jones line was part of the Max line. Correct. Right, and I believe Luke Cage and Speedball both showed up in that one. And uh, Cage had a miniseries. Yeah, yeah, his Max miniseries was prior to that. There's okay. also Max was more their adult-level brand, I would say, because there were right. other Max titles that were not crossed over with these. I think Fury Max was in the same universe as Punisher Max, but Supreme Power was not. That's the JMS take on the Squadron Supreme. Correct. That was a great story also. Yeah, I think that that was one of the, the shining stars. But as you said, it's unfortunate when you've got something that's adults only. You have cut a portion of the audience and you've cut out a, a portion of the retailers. There are some retailers that just flat out refuse to order anything that's adults only. Uh, the retailer I use that I've already mentioned, Roy Kim, at least at the time Supreme Power and those ones were going out, when I ordered anything on the Max label, he said, okay, just so you know, most of the time you can change your mind right up to the day it shows up, and he'll just reshelve it. Max right. titles, generally speaking, did not get reshelved, right? Because he wants to make sure it's it's a family-friendly thing. So if you pre-order a Max title, you're committed to the Max title. Right. You'll order anything you want, but because it's not going on the shelf, you've got to take that home, which I think it's completely fair. If I were running a shop, I'd probably run it the same way. Of course. But... At the same time, that does limit it because you're only going to get the pre-orders. You're not going to get the random schmuck off the street picking it up. No, I mean, that said, Thunderground, you can usually find collected editions because he keeps those. Some of the shelves are high enough that he's not worried about eight-year-olds picking them up and flipping through them, especially since the Max books tend to come shrink-wrapped. So there is a little more flexibility with the collected editions in a lot of these places. Uh, but you know, but when you're talking about the monthly issues, you know, it's as soon as you put that Max label on it, You've limited your audience, and that's something that just has to be taken into account when you're looking at the numbers when you're launching the title in the first place. So, but I mean, as you said, that did it paved the way. I don't remember the exact timing, so I don't know if that Max brand existed previously or not. But yeah, at the very least, I am sure the success of this one and the reception to this one are the reasons that Ennis and Dylan were brought back for a Punisher War Journal for a portion of that run, and then were put on the Max line later. It's got to be that, yeah, these two just, the two of them together do the Punisher very well. Very well. And that's, I mean, a lot of what we see here is nice, because they deal with a lot of the ramifications of this. You've got, the, the Punisher is one of the vigilantes out there, but there are actually four vigilantes in this story. One of them is a priest who has a hard time with the whole confession thing and forgiving people on behalf of his god, and in some cases would rather just hack them to pieces with an axe. You've got the elite, who is more concerned about you know, maintaining a high standard of living or at least a high standard of appearances in his neighborhood. You know, it's, you could, he could kill you because you're dealing drugs and that brings the neighborhood down. He could kill you because you're selling hot dogs and that brings the neighborhood down, which is very different from most incarnations of, say, the Punisher. I think the most extreme the Punisher ever got was when he'd kill anyone for breaking any law, including jaywalking, and that was later retconned to saying, no, 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 he was drugged. I remember that as well. Yeah, even I'm not a big Punisher fan, but even reading that, I was going, no, 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 this is not. The Punisher at that time, as you said, he'd been treated as the reluctant vigilante. He was the, somebody's got to do it, I'm here, I've got the training, it might as well be me. Right? It was, it was more about the efficiency than the passion. And then the last one here is Mr. Payback, who targets corporate executives who are doing damage to economies and cultures and regions with their behaviors and policies. And the other three do eventually meet each other, and they plan to form the Vigilante Squad and, you know, 
somehow entice the Punisher to show up as their leader. But that does not go as planned either. And that's part of the comedy of the series. I guess if you have a dark sense of humor, but I, I think anyone who reads the full story will, will find it funny at the end. Yeah, and along the way as well. I mean, you would think that this story would end at the at the end of issue four. Right. He gets he's made, as they say, during his stakeout by a member of the Gnucci family. So the leaders of the family chase him into the zoo. And while he's in there, he gets them to chase him into the polar bear enclosure, where he punches a polar bear in the nose just to piss it off, and then escapes, leaving the rest behind. So the angry polar bears attack Magnucci's. Now, unfortunately, Magnucci, who was running the family, survived. She's not necessarily the best for it. She's got some major scars on her head and no longer has arms or legs, but she survives. And that's the main driving factor of the last eight months is she is so pissed off, she's saying, shut this down. And she does everything and anything she can to get her killed. Yeah, she yeah, she is manipulating the the DA. She's manipulating the police commissioner. So when the police are told to sign a task force just to take down the Punisher, because he was annoying Magnucci, they create a task force of the one guy in the force that they really don't like and assign him, well, eventually a couple of assistants since his first committed suicide. And the second, Molly von Richthofen, I am assuming is a deliberate homage to the Red Baron. <laughs> you know, the Manfred von Richthofen. Right. Yeah, which is something, I mean, the Red Baron was obviously known for being the most decorated fighter pilot of the First World War. So if you're looking at confirmed kills from any pilot in the war, he had 80, which puts him at the top of the list. The second was a Canadian with 72. I haven't seen much about the Canadian's technique, but the Red Baron's, he's kind of developed this reputation for being a relentless pilot and successful killer, but if you really dig into what methods he used, apparently he used to basically abandon his squad and just fly around the periphery of the fight. And when he saw Allied planes, you know, trying to limp their way home when they were damaged, but not, you know, they they figured they could still get back successfully, he would pick them off. So he'd essentially go for the wounded while leaving his squad mates outgunned and outnumbered because he wasn't joining the major firefight. And that's a lot of the techniques that Molly's employing here. I mean, she's tasked to get rid of the Punisher. She wants to get rid of the Gnucci family. So she convinces Detective Soap, who is the one officially assigned to the task force, let's just... Camp out outside the Gnucci's and do the stakeout. Watch until the Punisher takes them on, and then we round up whoever survives. Which, to me, strikes me as a Red Baron-style tactic. You just wait on the periphery and pick up the wounded. So, I just, I found that was a nice touch. I strongly suspect that was a deliberate plant by Garth Ennis for that particular homage. So, I don't know if you'd agree with that. He's definitely a World 1 and 2 uh, history buff, as he's written other uh, war titles. So, I, I suspect you're correct. Okay. This could be one of the shorter podcasts, because I don't know what else there is to say about it. There's not really um, really a deeper meaning or a mission log to, to this. I mean, it really just kind of paved the way for the, the Max title. Yeah, it, if anything, if there's any morals or meanings to take out of it, it's just, we know that crime is bad. And part of this is that like the Punisher, it's, he's not necessarily a nice guy. right? The, by the time this is done, your question about whether or not he's a hero, or whether he's just simply a villain who targets other villains. I think part of the reason I enjoyed this so much when I usually don't is because I don't see him as a hero. I do see him as a villain who targets other villains just because of his methods. And when you get something like this that embraces, at the very least, the ambiguity of that, instead of trying to treat him as an unambiguous hero, I appreciate that. Because that's part of what turned me off of his early appearances when I was saying, no, he's definitely a hero. And when, really? No. No, he's not. But this one, there's even debate amongst the police about whether or not he's a good guy. Some of them are like, yeah, he's a bad guy, but he's helping us, so let's just... 
you know, we've got our list of priorities. We'll keep them nice and low and go after the rest. We've got a slightly different version in the Russian who really just flat out enjoys killing and at one point kills someone he considers a friend by accident. And it, it's very different. He's the one that actually gives the Punisher the biggest run for his money when it comes to combat. Since in this story, he's the assist, as, as you just mentioned. He likes it. He he smiles from it. He thinks it's fun and, you know, he really enjoys it, whereas this is not something that the wants to do, he feels he has to do. Uh, but the, the fight scene is great. It's it's definitely a lot of fun. One of the most fun parts, and not a lot of dialogue to it. No, yeah, it's, it's I think, well, essentially a full issue of the two of them beating on each other, or at least the majority of that issue. As I said, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. So I And I think that's part of the reason it landed where it did in the tournament. I mean, I haven't had a lot of exposure to Punisher stories, but I would easily say this is my favorite of those I have read by a significant margin. And frankly, overtaking The Devil in Cell Block D as my favorite Punisher story, because that's a huge Daredevil fan. And The Punisher worked so well as a guest star in that story. I've been telling people, yeah, if you want to see The Punisher, that's my favorite take on him. This is, this has passed that. So if someone's, you know, if someone's asking me for the advice on a good Punisher story to read, and you could track this down, I mean, Roy got me my copy used through an auction site online. Because it has been collected a couple of times in hardcover and in trade paperback, but it is out of print in all of the collections. So it is difficult to get your hands on. But yeah, as Punisher stories go, I would say it's probably the best. And I would, looking at, you know, this came in at 64, and the next time we talk about the Punisher is his first appearance in Amazing Spider-Man 129, I would say I prefer this. You get much more of a feel for the character in, in, in this story. Um, of course, an origin, well, it wasn't even an origin, it was just the first appearance, so you, you don't get any feel for him for the most part, but you get a little bit in The Amazing Spider-Man, which you can see in this, how he operates and how he how he feels. But I would agree that this is, this is my favorite Punisher story as well. And I think that about wraps up our discussion of Welcome Back, Frank. Listeners out there, if you don't consider yourself a Punisher fan, neither did I. I am a fan of this story. I won't necessarily recommend tracking down any other Punisher story. But this one is worth reading if you have even a slim interest in the character. So with that said, uh, if you're reading along at home, you've got a pretty massive reading assignment for next week. I should start taking these long ones and giving earlier warning, I suppose. Next week, we're going to be talking about the New Mutants run by Chris Claremont, which officially, according to the Marvel's published list, includes Marvel Graphic Novel number 4, New Mutants issues 1 through 54, and Annuals 1 through 3, which have been collected in New Mutants Classic Volumes 1 through 7, as well as partially collected on Comixology and Marvel Digital Unlimited. Often the incomplete parts of the collections are just tie-ins to events. Uh, The first three classic volumes uh, at this point are also part of the Scribd.com graphic novels library. So if you are subscribed to Scribd, which is like Netflix for, for print materials in general, both prose and comics now, you can get the first three volumes of New Mutants Classics there. All right, so Josh, thanks again for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. All right, and we look forward to hearing you again when we discuss Amazing Spider-Man number 129 in about seven weeks' time. All right, so listeners at home, please feel free to rate the show on iTunes and Stitcher and share links to the show with friends who you think may be interested. And thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the -the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon. 
The Comic Book Conversation Show. This is John Suntress. War Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage. 